Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with Central Oregon's most positive and enlightening reporter, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by the Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. This podcast is also generously supported by Worthy Brewing, putting education first, utilizing green technologies and experimenting daily to brew the best damn beer in the Pacific Northwest, all while treading as lightly on the earth as possible, living out their mantra, earth first, beer second. Uh, our guest today is Stephanie Garber. Is that how you say it? Correct. Superintendent and elementary principal for the Culver School District. <clears throat> she established a partnership with Oregon State University Cascades to move the district to becoming a K through 12 STEM district, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. She gave a TED talk in 2016 about the STEM program, which described how it introduced students to real world learning opportunities it is, has been a mentor for a number of her students who don't have stable families and provided access to housing, medical care, food, or clean clothes, and even became a parent for one who is now a permanent part of her family. She has been a huge advocate for students in the debate as to whether or not we should open schools this fall and how Stephanie got on our radar. <clears throat> she recently wrote a letter to Governor Kate Brown, the state school board, Oregon legislatures, and Jefferson County commissioners arguing that local communities and school boards should decide when to open schools in their own communities, asking to eliminate the one-size-fits-all state mandate for schools. Stephanie, thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, so, Stephanie, what originally drew you to education? Mrs. Wagner. Uh, so, we moved a lot between North Dakota and California. Um, five times. And then in sixth grade, I had Mrs. Wagner and uh, she truly loved every single student in the room and you could feel it. And um, that was the year I decided I know what I want to be when I grow up. And then um, your family raised bucking bulls in Powell Butte. <laughs> At least I understand that's, that's correct. How did you get into that side of, of things? Oh my, uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> a longer story. So um, from sixth grade on, I lived in Tigard, Oregon. And um, city girl marries country boy on a blind, I was on a blind date over here to central Oregon. We ended up getting married. And when I married Keith, he um, was a general contractor and a professional rodeo judge. He had finished his rodeo competitor career. And it was all brand new to me. And then um, he wanted to get into the last aspect of it, and that was raising the animals. And um, so we had a partnership with the neighbor that we took care of all their cattle, and in return, they paid us in cattle. So that's how we started growing our herd. And then you start getting the right bloodlines. And um, he was he did it on the side as a hobby, and um, he ended up being really really successful he made it up to the top level of the built ford tough pbr professional wow. bull riders like the nfl but yeah. for bull riders right. um yeah and it was really amazing and it was a great way to raise kids and uh but unfortunately in 2016 he unexpectedly passed away from a heart attack and um, it's a huge financial burden. So when you raise cattle, you sell them, right? You make money. Well, the bulls, you keep them. <laughs> Ideally, right? <laughs> so so right. it's just, a, you, you just have to keep putting money in it. And I had an 11 and a 13-year-old. And financially, I just couldn't keep it. 
keep it going. Yeah. But it was an excellent way to raise kids and it was certainly a thrilling, thrilling way to spend your weekends. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. And well, speaking of riding bulls, then you move, how did you come from moving from super, from teacher to superintendent? <laughs> That's a, a very relevant analogy. Um, so I was a teacher in Redmond School District, and I had decided that I wanted to learn and grow some more. So I was in my third day of classes. The University of Oregon had started a brand new cohort where they actually came to Central Oregon to grow administrators. And uh, so I was in my third day and this gal comes to me at lunch and she's like, you need to come to Culver. We have an elementary position um, open to be the principal and you need to interview. And I was like, can you even do that? I don't have the degree. (laughs) And so um, I, went ahead and did it and I thought I was just getting good interview experience and they hired me and so I was like okay uh and so that was an amazing journey um and I was a very happy elementary principal here and then our superintendent left really late in the school year she left in May and told the board in May of 2009 that she was leaving Well, usually a a superintendent search is a six to 10 month process. And so the board, the board came to me and said, everyone um, appreciates you and you have the trust since you have all the littles. Um, Would you take on being interim superintendent too? And I was like, no, who would want that job? <laughs> and I really said no. And then um, I am faith-based, so I prayed about it. And over the next two weeks, um, I learned that I was probably just supposed to do it. And so originally I said, okay, I will do it, but one year. You got me one year. <laughs> and the, I was so terrible that first year that after the year was over, I'm like, wait, I need a do-over. And so that was 12 years ago. <laughs> so I remained, <laughs> I remained both for 12 years. I just love this place. Great. Tell us a little bit about the science, technology, engineering, and math program you started in Culver in coordination with OSU. Yeah, so... Um, In my intro, you had shared that I mentored a lot of kids. For some reason, I am just in love with the underdogs. And every kid needs a champion. And some kids don't have that. And so I started um, actually through the bull riding industry. I would find these boys or I would learn of these boys at the high school that um, weren't really successful. And one of them I used, if, okay, if I if you'll work with me and we get all your grades to passing, you can go to a PBR with my family. And so I bribe them. (laughs) And um, that young man was told his best bet was to drop out and guess what? He graduated. So um, then after that, the next year I got another boy and I realized that they, they would come for only certain class periods and skip others. And so I would start to try and figure out what, what is it about the ones that they come to? Well, it was our hands-on STEM class. We had one period of it at our high school. 
and they did some really cool projects like building a paddle wheel down at Lake Billy Chinook in the irrigation canal that still to this day powers the lights for the check-in kiosk. Um, so they were doing all these hands-on purposeful real world cool stuff and those boys would never miss that period and so I started to think um, all right, we need more of this. And then, so we, we started to do a few more projects and I watched kids just get on fire for what they were doing because really our education system for a century has been you sit in the desk, you learn this amount of information and we test you on it and we give you the credits and everybody has to get the same credits. You know, in our world today, really if you have a device in the internet, you can learn anything. And so, um, I had drafted this brainstorm idea and I kind of um, walked, I made an appointment. I had heard that OSU Cascades had just hired a STEM um, instructor and kind of a coordinator. And so I met with him. I didn't tell anybody I was meeting with him and I slid my idea across the desk and I said, here's an idea I have for a K-12 transformation of a small school district. Um, and I asked him, am I crazy? Or what do you think? And he uh, said, no, you're not crazy at all. And he had just come from back east from a school district just like that. And so, oh my gosh, whirlwind. So within six months, we wrote grants and we had three quarters of a million dollars in grants. Um, wow. Yeah. And we rock and rolled for two years. We had amazing professional development for the teachers, graduate level coursework. And we had all these community partners, that's the key with STEM, is that you have a community partner that has a problem that needs fixing and you assign kids to fix it. And oh. so um, kindergartners worked with the local humane society. So um, they made dog toys and dog biscuits. So every adopted dog went away with a um, care package made by Culver Kinders. And uh, they, they um, engineered the dog toys with tennis balls and rope and whatever they thought could work and he, all the way up to just incredible things that have happened at our high school and middle school. I don't know if you remember two years ago, is it three years ago now when the Lake Billy Chinook, the cove was on fire and all the campground and everything burned. Our middle schoolers were part of restoring all of that. And, and like what what have yeah. you seen from the kids during these this kind of class, like when they get in there? Because, you know, so much- They're on fire, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, a class period isn't long enough. So they just kept begging for more time and you find them after school working on something or asking, um, can, can I take a device home so I can work on this over the weekend and we can come in on Monday. They just forget time and space and they're so into it. And um, so that is why the whole crux of we went K-12, but guess what? When the money goes away, <laughs> so right. do all the extra resources. And so it's been difficult. We still have STEM um, A8, kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, and they still have partners and different things because the teachers love it too. Um, and at the high school, it fights with all the required courses that kids need to graduate. So there are some right. offerings, but it wasn't school-wide like it was for those two years. 
So speaking of funding, um, can you tell us a little bit about the socioeconomic makeup of families in your district and what makes Culver unique? Yeah, we have about 600 and, well, depending on the year, 650 to 700 students. And about 65% of them are high poverty. And then uh, about 17% are English as a second language and 8% are homeless. Um, homeless has a different definition. So if you're in multiple families in one house, um, that is considered homeless. Likewise, uh, manufactured homes before 1982 um, are considered homeless. So they do, they might have a dwelling. It's just considered substandard. Um, but nevertheless, it's still, they don't have the access to resources. Yeah. So let's dive in and talk a little bit about the pandemic and school reopenings. In the recent guest commentary, um, which was also the letter to the governor um, that we published in the source, you talked about serving families in your district um, to see if they wanted to reopen. So what did you learn from that process? Right, so in the end of June, when the Oregon Department of Education came out with three options that school districts could pick. Um, we surveyed our parents and 89.7% of our parents, even though there's risk with COVID, um, they wanted in the fall, they wanted their kids on campus. And then 11% um, wanted their students to stay at home but do online learning. And then um, three, <laughs> three families wanted paper, pencil, no online, but keep their kids at home. And we stood ready to serve all three of those methods at that time. And then of course, as our state knows, then the governor came out um, in August and said it will all be distance learning. And so, yeah, and I know you've been critical of distant learning. If, if I could just read the, what you wrote to the American Academy of Pediatrics, you said schools are fundamental to child development and well-being and provide our children with academic instruction, social and emotional skills, safety, reliable nutrition, physical speech and mental health therapy, and opportunities for physical activity, among other benefits. Then you wrote, we are going to abolish all of that for a risk of less than 1%. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So that that what you just read, the American Academy of Pediatric Doctors wrote that the national at the national level. Um, the CDC also has a similar statement. And um, just out of curiosity, yesterday I did calculate how many children have COVID now. They children are getting it, um, and nine or younger as of yesterday in Oregon, 0.003% um, have it, have gotten it ever. And um, ages 10 to 19, it's 0 0.005. So it's still much less than 1%. And um, we haven't had any deaths yet um, of children. And so I just think that after watching All Spring, um, we are small. So we are afforded opportunity to know where our kids are and what they're doing 
at a much easier rate than like a bend lapine. Um, and so watching the students suffer and um, I personally went and delivered food bags to bags of food, um, not just the lunch and breakfast, I'm talking food to sustain the whole family. Sure. Um, and, and it's, yeah, all those needs that kids are wired for, social, food, learning, all of those things, um, I would say distance learning, we should call it distance practicing um, because it put all parents in the um, position of being a teacher. And um, depending on the skill set, that was either successful or not. And really, you had to have a stay-at-home parent to make it work. Um, for youngers, the older kids can be more responsible and get online for themselves. But we have place, we have homes with no internet access, so we would go out and buy hotspots and pay for it and try and make everything work. And some families just really said, "We are not doing school here." Yeah, you. I remember you had. I, I forget where I read it, but um, just a grandmother who was responsible for taking care of her kids and just in frustration had come in and just given you all the supplies back and just let you know simply, yeah. honestly, that's not something that I can do and these kids will not be educated going forward. Yeah, it was heart-wrenching because um, I did sit with her side-by-side side twice trying to teach her to get her elementary students on the device. How do you do it? How do you use it? And she came in and she said, I'm a failure to my grandson. I can't do this. And um yeah, it, it's, in your, it's really hard. In, in your experience, when people, when you get together with colleagues and other teachers and stuff, are there um, conversations being had that kind of, to me, it just seems like a given that this system is so much less than what mm -hmm. kids were being offered. But have you heard from other educators that, this is a great model that we're moving to, mm -hmm. or isn't it awesome that we're doing online learning? I mean, because I, I don't hear that, but I'm not necessarily in the education field. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't heard it where I work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have heard, trying to figure out the best way to phrase this. So maybe I should start with my my view of the COVID and all of that. I have never one day been in fear. And so your comfort level regarding the virus or your susceptibility or um, all of those sorts of things then guides, you know, your views of things. Absolutely. And so um, I have not been in fear. And so to me, it is not a massive risk to bring kids back on campus. Um, but people who are in fear, fear that gathering children or gathering anyone will, will trans, transmit the virus. And so um, I do know my sister's a teacher over in the Valley and she has shared the views of a lot of her colleagues and they are scared and they don't, they don't want to be in the classroom. That's why I feel so blessed to be in Culver. We're pretty gritty. <laughs> We're pretty tough and, <laughs> and we love the kids and, and everybody wants to be here. Yeah. 
when we talk about the, um, a lot of times in this conversation, and especially in a hard moment like this, how do you balance the well-being of the teachers versus the well-being mm. of the students? I mean, especially in your district where we're talking about that kind of poverty with the, you know, government assistance that comes in the form of just simply these kids being with other kids and with adults that they're not getting on their own. Um, tell, I mean, if you could give me some insight into how that conversation is going on amongst colleagues. You know, um, we have some of all, you know, we, we have, so to reference, we have about 45 teachers and we have about 90 employees total. So that includes bus drivers, that includes um, nutrition services, everyone. Um, and I have to say that if I had to guess, we didn't formally survey, but last spring we did not close our building because the essential workers could be in their buildings and almost everybody was here. And um, you can get a sense of, of fear or no fear and they were just begging for their kids to come back. And we all at that time were saying, oh, this really stinks, but at least in the fall, you know, we'll be back to normal. And so when we weren't back to normal, um, it's really upsetting to, to our folks. And there are just a couple that need accommodation. So we're willing to accommodate all, all the comfort levels. And um, some folks might be teaching from home and we'll have another grown-up, a staff member in the classroom um, with a pod of 10 and they'll, they'll do it that way. We're, we're willing to accommodate wherever the comfort level is, but I, I haven't heard anyone that says, um, yeah, we just need to all stay home or anything like that. And most of them, um, so Culver's small. So like when you see people around and people still hug, <laughs> people still <laughs> well I have to share with but you, you do have 45 you have 45 teachers so as a yeah. percentage I mean it's just extrapolated and I do think that there's obviously there's characteristics to all regions but I mean you're saying of your teachers to a person they're all willing to come back yeah well um just a handful are currently actually they are see they don't come back till Monday so they're still on summer break. So I invited them all that if they needed to or desired any accommodations. In the new governor's mandate, they are expected to come back to work and on site. And so um, if they need special accommodations or in the high risk category, they're to work with our personnel director on what those accommodations are. And okay. so far, a lot of them have just been, they just need reassurance that the cleaning is gonna happen and the sanitizing is gonna happen. This is kind of, um, somebody said the term the other day and I thought, oh my gosh, that is exactly what we're doing, taking a drink out of a fire hose. Like so much is coming at us that we have yeah. never done before. And we, every day there's like probably, I would say 50 questions asked and I don't know the answer to any but five, you know, but. I'll get back to you is my favorite, my sure. favorite term. <laughs> yeah. So um, you made a proposal to the Oregon Department of 
education about um, changing the way they calculate the restrictions um, by zip code instead of county. Right. Can you talk about that and also your proposal to come back on Mondays. Yeah, you mean the one that got denied on Saturday, that proposal? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we just couldn't stand it to go full-time distance learning because if you're going to be a brand new middle schooler, we feel like the relationship you build with those teachers is paramount to your success. Likewise, if you are an eighth grader and it's going to be your first year in high school, how do you navigate all online? And so, um, and with our lack of success in distance learning in the spring, our proposal was that all students would be on site on Mondays. And then in the guidance, you can pull in groups of 10. Um, so on Mondays, we see everybody, and then we could see who was really struggling, and we could pull them in the other four days. Um, periodically to support them with whatever their need would be. Some kids just need social emotional help. You know, some are struggling and not doing any academic work, whatever their need. Um, the Oregon Department of Education gave a wide range of what you could pull them in for. So we thought if we could get eyes on them, you know, and see the whites of their eyes and get a sense of how they are, then we could line them out for the rest of the week better. You know, parents that- sure we could anyway and hold them accountable because you're coming back the next Monday <laughs> so you better <laughs> right. have this stuff done right. and um and so that was our proposal we knew it was a risk but it did mitigate exposure down 80 percent if we only saw them one out of five days you know that's anyway but it was denied so See, amongst your students um how many students in your district about 670. And how many, I mean, what is your guesstimate to how many of those students you're going to lose under this new system? I mean, what yes. was your attrition rate before compared to what you're estimating your attrition rate's going to be now? Yeah, so we were growing again um, for the last two years, three years. And now just today, 22 um, withdrawal forms over the last week have come to the district, the parents are going to do online charter school. Wow. And as you see that as an increasing, and what, how does online charter school differ from the kind of offerings that you're going to offer? Is this is like something out of Pittsburgh or, you know, wherever? Yeah. So there's all sorts of different ones that right. they're signing up for. I think they, it's just what they do. So they're probably sharper at it. Um, yeah. Some, Charter schools are more um, like textbook online type sure. based, and then others actually have a teacher that's on and instructing and all those sorts of things. Um, but how think, many? How yeah. many of the kid, How many kids do you estimate, aside from the people who are finding other alternative educational opportunities? But like you were talking about, the STEM program brings people into your classrooms because it's hands-on and that's important yeah. for a lot of kids especially for learners who are physical or you know have that as their preference so mm -hmm. but you're going to lose those i mean i i'm always stunned that we don't calculate the loss of those kind of learners into the equation yeah well we kept the united states postal service super busy all spring because <laughs> 
teachers, oh my gosh, these teachers are amazing. They would concoct hands-on learning and put it in Ziploc bags. And we bought those big Tyvek white envelopes. Yeah. And we, it was sometimes 12 bucks an envelope, but we sent them so that kids could still have um, more than just paper pencil learning. And yeah, I'm super proud of the teachers, but it's not something you want to do for a year. Well, and Stephanie, I, I got to think that that's not standard operating procedure for districts around the state. Like, So I do know now when districts found out that they were doing comprehensive distance learning, a lot of districts are um, purchasing a virtual curriculum. So F Florida has a really good one, a Florida virtual curriculum. It's already done. And so then teachers go in and just pick what they want to use. And the online platform is established. I honestly have just peeked at it. I didn't look in depth because I, I'm selfish. I kind of love that our teachers, you know, are able to customize per kid and they're willing sure. to. Um, we have a um, independent life skills program. And so those are children with severe disabilities. Oh my gosh, that teacher was doing the same thing. She was cutting out all these little squares so that to practice the words, what they would do in the classroom is you pull the letter, they can't write necessarily. And so you pull the letter, you know, to spell, she was cutting them all out. I mean, these teachers wow. did whatever it took to meet the students' needs. And I we worried that one canned curriculum and honestly it, maybe it is amazing and i didn't check into it enough one canned curriculum like that you can't cater to the individual kid needs but again we're spoiled because size matters we just have two classes of every grade so you can get very personal yeah. that's mm -hmm. great um are any families organizing pods um in the district like oh my goodness yes so i just learned of um uh six i think it's six families that put out an advertisement because they're hiring a certified teacher that will come teach all these children um i don't know where um so that obviously there's a financial cost to that um there's another amazing um, grandma uh, she's a first graders grandma who was a former teacher so the little first grader and some of her friends um, these families have all bound together and so I think um, there's going to be five students that this um, retired teacher grandma is going to have every day and so they're organizing these things which um, I think is super creative and um, those kids will get the social part of it, you know, they'll get fed, all those things. But our poorest families don't have the means to make any of that happen. Yeah, that, that was a question I was gonna ask you is, do, do you feel in this environment, the increasing sense of the haves and have nots is, you know, people can afford these pods and, and they can afford great curriculums from these, yeah. you know, schools where, I mean, in your district, you have a lot of a lot of kids who are just going to check out. I mean, to be honest, that is very honest, and it's what 
keeps me up at night. It's what's on my heart 24-7. This really does magnify the discrepancy of resources and um, those typically at risk or or left behind, um, the gap is greater. And so that is why I am just on fire that somehow they have to be on campus. It's their greatest hope of equalizing, you know, um, and they get fed and it's stable and they know what they can count on. Stephanie, we are out of time. Are you anything you'd like to touch on before we end the the, Yeah, so we just, right before I got on here, sent out a survey. We are able to gather groups of 10 for two hours a day. And so we are, because of our size, we are able to accommodate any child that wants to come onto campus, any family that wants their kids on campus. And we sent out the survey and it's kind of like um, the uh, slot machine, like it just sits <laughs> ding, 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 ding. And so we're watching, the, the families have three options. They have um, the distance learning with coming on site for two hours a day. Um, there's a morning session in the afternoon, kind of like the old-fashioned morning kindergarten, afternoon kindergarten, because we have to do two full bus routes, um, so we had to leave time. And Oregon Department of Ed only allows two hours. But because we're small, we fit all their guidelines. So parents are currently, as we are talking, filling out the surveys and picking if they want to do the distance learning with the on-site two, two hours a day, full distance learning online, or packet only. So at least those families that want their kids to be on campus, I know two hours isn't enough, but it's a place to start. Stephanie, it's been terrific talking to you. I appreciate you taking the time with everything you've got going on right now. And, um, and I really appreciate the work you're putting in. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, Laurel. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for coming. This has been the Ben Don't Break podcast. We appreciate you listening. <laughs>